a playlist original. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Back to the Blockbuster. My name is Gaius Bowling, and I am joined with my boy Donnie uh, for this very special episode that we're doing. What's up, dude? Hey, man, how's it going? It's me, guys, Donnie. I've done this one, other, one or two other times, I believe. Um, it's been a while, but um, it's, go- it's good to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Uh, we are so our, our anniversary episodes tend to do uh really well on back to the blockbuster and my only uh regret is that especially this year there's been so many movies that have either turned like 10 15 20 like you know and so on so it's hard to fit them all in the schedule but like when we were when i was doing the schedule um kind of fishing out july and august i was like oh robocop is turning 35 i think it's july 17th <laughs> And I was like, I got to fit that in there. Um, the other two guys who are normally on, uh, Jack and Owen, they couldn't be on today because I work from home mostly. And so it's a lot easier for me to hop on whenever I need to hop on. Um, but they are all for any uh, any kind of promotion that gets episodes out there and uh, kind of keeps uh, the interest going. So they were more than happy to yeah. allow us to do this. Um, like you said, uh, Donnie, you have been on before. Uh, probably the most significant one there was... Uh, was the screen one right yeah that was actually my first one the your first one, one. And then yeah also, yeah and then i think we also did like a little small segment on the oscars I think yeah it was like right before like the, the actual uh award ceremony right um and the screen one was actually a lot the way we're both fun but the screen one was a lot of fun that was kind of got our uh kind of feet wet with like inviting guests on so that was like a good uh yeah initial trial run um but uh for those who haven't uh heard about you on you um let them know who you are um yeah. and kind of what you're so, what you yeah, want to plug uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so once again i'm donnie um i i'm sort of a sort of an aspiring filmmaker i go to school um i'm actually about to graduate i um i also like watching movies as a result of me my being here um i actually write my own reviews as a matter of fact i started redo i started doing that up again because i actually found the time to do it mad movie time if you want to find me on instagram or on facebook you know where to, you know where to find it but <laughs> yeah that's just that's just something small about me i mean there's not a whole lot of mystery to the donnie <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like it's cool too because like i think through all this stuff we kind of everyone kind of finds each other whether it's via instagram facebook twitter i've actually i used to hate twitter but now i have to it's the primary place that we promote the podcast and then i just got and then i just got g reels verified on twitter so i've kind of forcing myself thank you so i'm like forcing myself to use it more um but there's so many people out there that are like either they got into the podcast game like especially during the pandemic there's like nothing to do so they did it then um are there just like movie fans that just want to write freelance their own reviews just for fun and then there's other people that are doing it professionally and doing press junkets like there's so many different type of people doing this and uh that's what's been really cool about starting our podcast that we've gotten to meet so many different uh people from everywhere we did a batman returns anniversary episode and one of the guys that was on he was from england and it was way late way late when we recorded during <laughs> we recorded like around this time and he was perfect he was perfectly okay with it i was like oh well yeah, thank you that, for that, show. That would, that, that would seem a little late, though, don't you think? Like it's yeah, it seems like we might have been past midnight or something. Yeah, it was very late for him, but he was very enthusiastic throughout the entire conversation. Oh, well. So, 
as long as you wanted to be there, then I guess that's Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, that's another thing, too. Like, the timing is just always so hard because, like, like mm-hmm. I was telling the, the guys, like, all of our best guests are either, like, maybe an hour ahead of us are mostly like Eastern time. So three hours ahead of us. Um, I've found it hard to find a lot of people like in LA <laughs> that uh, want to hop on and do this. Like most of our good guests mm-hmm. are like, yeah, like I live in New York or I live in Florida. And so the timing is always like kind of tricky, but like we usually make it like work out for the most part. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You know, I'm usually like, Hey, I'm, I'm not the one that's staying up late. So it's like up to you guys <laughs> about when you want to, <laughs> Right. <laughs> try to do it <laughs> i was actually gonna hop on the on the twitter thing i'm actually gonna probably start transitioning to twitter myself i started going through it and i'm starting to i'm starting to find a liking for it i don't know what exactly it is that i've i've yet to like but um I, there's something there i guess waiting for me so I've, I've yet to find out yeah what i've discovered too is that like if you don't go and like and retweet things that you don't want to that you don't want in your feed it doesn't pop up. So mm-hmm. if you're mostly just liking and retweeting movie stuff, that's all you're uh that's all you're really gonna see. And if you're only and if you're only following certain people like that, that's all you're really gonna see. I mean, if you want to look for the more like polarizing, like negative stuff, it's definitely there. <laughs> um but I, I I'm glad that like I've I've learned that like, oh I don't I don't it doesn't necessarily just because it's popular gonna pop up there. Like, you know, it, it kind of coordinates your feed to what you're interested in. Cause there's certain things I definitely don't want to see. <laughs> and, uh, I'm glad that I rather, you know, I'm, I'm okay living in my little pop culture movie bubble. Cause I already have to watch yeah, the real course. news, real, real news during the day or right before I go to bed. And that's all the, uh, the real shit I need <laughs> as far as like what's going on in the world at the moment. So yeah, I mean, you should hop on. I mean, if you can find like the right, uh, like audience and stuff, it's actually a really good space. It's not, I'm I'm mm-hmm. glad I've learned how to maneuver it uh, since starting this. Well, so, yeah, I just, what I just need to do is just learn how to maneuver it, and then I'll probably yeah. just I'll just get there my own my own way. Yep. All right, so we are here to talk about RoboCop, and just a little overview yes. for people who haven't seen it. I'll give you like a quick little rundown. Uh, RoboCop was released on July seventeenth, nineteen eighty seven. It is a science fiction action film directed by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, the screenplay by Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner. And the film stars Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, Ronnie Cox, Kurt Wilt Smith, and Miguel Ferrer. And it is set in a crime-ridden Detroit, which seems like a very realistic Detroit, <laughs> uh, in, the near, in the near future. Uh, the movie centers on a police officer by the name of Alex Murphy, who was murdered by a gang of criminals and subsequently revived by the mega corporation Omni Consumer Products as a cyborg law enforcer, RoboCop. Unaware of his former life, RoboCop executes a brutal campaign against crime while coming to terms with the lingering fragments of his humanity. Um, the film was, uh, I guess, based on like its premise and everything, and like, because it on on paper and on the surface seems very ridiculous. They weren't expecting like one it to be well received by critics or to really make a ton of money but when it came mm-hmm. out um it they were kind of in uh encouraged by like all the uh early test screenings that they had for the film they were all very positive and by the time the movie was released it was well received by critics and on a 13 13.7 million dollar budget ended up grossing 53.4 million dollars at the domestic box office which is 
pretty good for 1987. Um, yeah. The success of the film uh, started a franchise of its own with sequels, including RoboCop 2, released in 1990, RoboCop 3 in 1993. There was a ch- children's animated series, multiple live action television shows, video games, comic books, toys, other merchandise. A reboot was also released in 2014. And there has also been talk about a direct sequel to the 1987 film, tentatively titled RoboCop Returns. Uh, That's been in development since 2020. I haven't really heard much about it lately. Uh, Mm -hmm. But maybe, like, once we talk about, like, the overall success of the movie, we can kind of talk about where the franchise is now. Um, Since we are different ages, we I mean, we've discovered it, uh, RoboCop, at different times. Uh, When did you first see it, and what did you think about it when you first saw it? So it's kind of a funny story. So I didn't discover RoboCop by watching it. I um I was surfing the web on YouTube one day, and the, I guess this was like an era of like you know like very like good editing, and there's this one page that would take the scenes from like other movies. Like take for example, like the one I watched was Terminator versus RoboCop. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, we, so, so we see like so we see different scenes from both movies and they're put together to make it seem like they're actually the ones fighting each other and oh, i mean nice. it's, a, it's a it's a it's a little weird looking don't get me wrong i mean it was made like what 13 14 years ago but i watched it recently again and i'm like i can't believe i used to like this and i still like it like it, it's it's clearly like not all there but it, it's it's fun to watch you know so eventually I gave in and I watched RoboCop and I fell in love with it right away. Um, I think what really got me going was that Kurtwood Smith is in it. And I was just off, I was just fresh off of that 70s show as well. So seeing him in this early role in his acting career, you know, it was, it was really impressive to see him play a bad guy and such a foul mouthed one at that, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> super so good. The guy. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, um, I, I, I really, I really appreciated a lot of what it, what it offered as in terms of it being more of a satirical approach to like, like, I guess, crime fighting, if you could Mm say. Right. Um, but also because it felt like it was more in the vein of Terminator, which is also going back to that video. And I made that connection right away. I'm like, okay, so is RoboCop really like trying to do its own thing, which obviously it did, or is it just trying to mimic Terminator in terms of it, of him being a cyborg, basically? Right. You know? But yeah, to this day, like I, I just I literally watched it like what this morning, like the fi- the final hour of it, and yeah. you know it still holds up amazingly. I ended up buying a four uh, K steelbook of it. It was the Arrow video. Uh, yeah, I need to I need to get that. Like I keep going. Like I, I like I'm 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 stupid because sometimes like I be I will buy the most ridiculous things sometimes, and for other <laughs> things I get really cheap, and I'm like, ah, oh, do I want to spend? It was it's forty one dollars right now on Amazon, and I like I guess. I could get it. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I actually got lucky because um, I, I go to I go to Barnes and Noble very frequently for Criterion's, and they usually okay. have a pretty a pretty decent sale on them. Usually, at their bogos like buy one get one half off. And to my luck, there was an Arrow Video sale where all Arrow Video products were fifty percent off. Oh, so. Lucky. And so instead of paying 50 bucks for a steel book, I paid $25 for RoboCop. And I also nabbed the, the true romance limited edition for 35 instead of 70. Wow. That's great. That's not, and like, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to make fun of myself right now because 
I'm saying that $41 is too expensive. I definitely bought the Arrow 4K Wild Things because it was $35. (laughs) Um, And uh, (laughs) one one could argue that that's too much money as well. And I was like, oh, whatever, take my money. It's Wild Things. Uh, I could probably Mm -hmm. do the same thing for uh, RoboCop. Um, I mean, you know what? There's nothing wrong with Wild Things, though. You got to love the movie (laughs) for it's it's just a pure absurdity. You know, it's it's, it's just one of those And it's time, like the time it came out. Yeah, it's like (laughs) very much a product of like, what, 98, 99, whenever it came out. And I was like, I don't have like a definitive copy of it. I had like a real like old DVD copy of it. So I was like, yeah, I'll get it. Whatever. Um, Plus it probably came with some uh, cool stuff, didn't it? Yeah, it came with like all these like lobby cards and the poster and like this booklet about the about and this booklet about the making of it. Um, A a really extensive for a movie like that, but it was still really (laughs) cool. And um, I actually went on Amazon today and looked at the RoboCop thing again. I was like, I should get it for it's in my cart. I put it back in my cart. I need to just like close my eyes and just like pull the trigger and just get it because I do have it on Blu-ray. You should you I, should check the Barnes and Noble uh, website just to see if they don't have that Arrow video sale on there still if it's still going on that is. Yeah, but, I definitely should. Yeah, I got, yeah it Barnes sounds, for some reason they're just they're just known for like these sales that they have like at random times and it, it yeah. just I guess it's just a time I guess it's just a a matter of time thing like you know you just have to get it at the right time. Right, and it sounds like a really good release. All the reviews I read for it um were really good and um feels like it's like the definitive release of the movie at this point if you're uh Mm -hmm. heavy in the 4k and all that as well um yeah i need to bite the bullet and just get it (laughs) just get it yeah because you know because you know what it actually um it's not even the theatrical cut it's the director's director's cut cut, yeah Yeah, which is a full 4k scan of it and it it, it looks really nice like yeah you can tell it's an 80s movie but the the touch-ups the, the the coloring and everything is it's, it's perfect <laughs> yeah nice um so my time with it a little di- i grew up with it um but my viewing of it is a lot different um compared to when i was a kid and then when i got older mm-hmm. um of course it kind of came out uh or well, not really came out but it, when i was discovering like movies like that it was in that sweet spot of like so like robocop and predator like those really like those kind of late 80s, like ultra violent uh, 80s action movies. Um, as a child, as a child, you only watch because they were ultra violent and they were like, it was just fun to watch. You're not really watching it for anything uh, deeper than that. Other than, yeah. Yeah. Other than like, like, cool, look at all the like, you know, <laughs> fucking gunfighting and blood and like all this stuff and like explo- <laughs> explosions and like, you know, and the character itself is cool if you're if you're a kid as well. Um, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I think I was like 13 or 14 and started to pay attention to, um, the more satirical aspects of it, um, that I realized that not only is it like a fun action movie, like in the vein of like all those other action movies that came out then, but it's also insanely smart. Uh, yeah, I, I had, and like, it was weird getting that epiphany, like, <laughs> When you're a teenager, like, oh, I've been watching this like for all the wrong reasons. I mean, like, no, not granted, they might not be the wrong reasons, but like, there's more here than like what I was watching it for. And you know, kind of what it says about like kind of big corporations and like you know, advertising and all that stuff, how that plays into like what uh, uh, we kind of how we kind of view society and like what's important to all these like bi- uh, big businesses, especially uh, as their like city is like kind of crumbling around them, like. You know they're not really thinking about like how best to protect the people living in their city it's all about like 
the, the financial bottom line and like that stuff right. is all in that movie and like it was something i never paid attention to as a child but like as you get older and then the more i watch it as i get older i would you know someone asked me one time if, if it was my favorite action movie of that time period and as far as like the if if i was just to say its level of intelligence and the surprising amount of like emotional like depth that's in it uh with him trying to figure out like who he was um it's up there pretty high i would say mm-hmm. um it it always hits me a little differently every time i watch it uh again like um like i said as a kid i didn't pay attention to a lot of these things but like even you could argue that like you don't really get a ton of time for him to like kind of rediscover who he is but it's just enough that you like feel for him as he's like i don't know what i was and i'm learning what i was and then that like kind of overall like sadness that you kind of feel like the scene where he goes back to his house um and he's walking through it and he's walking through it as robocop that is like that scene alone is like all you really need to kind of like all right this is uh this is why the movie is working because it's not just like a shoot em up action movie there's actually like an emotional component there that that is important like for the characters like you have to care about him too even though he is at this point just a machine and it's a credit to like peter weller and i guess like the writing too you don't really get a lot a lot of time to spend with him when he's alex murphy uh mm-hmm. before he's killed but there's a likability i guess in peter weller that there's just enough time where you do feel for him uh after the fact and so right. there was like all these little things about the movie that like i years and years of watching it i've seen it so many times and i i try i show it to so many friends who always are like oh no it's just like a big dumb 80s sci-fi action movie and i'm like no pay attention to like this you're about to have a rude awakening yeah i know (laughs) and then like even they're like dude there's so many things i didn't really like pay attention to uh you know Mm -hmm. like this the thing like and like it's so funny their view their view of like detroit I mean, I mean, I don't even just say Detroit. It's just like the view of like society as a whole, even in 1987, is so not far off to where we're like, where we're at now, as far as like mm-hmm. what's important to like big corporations and then the media and the stuff that they're selling. And there's like that whole other component to the movie that almost feels like it's its own little movie itself, where you're dealing with like uh, all the big corporations and all the advertisers for the media, like, uh, and then dealing with like, the crime that's like kind of infested uh detroit via like you know all the violence and then drug use and all that stuff and i don't know it's just it's way more intelligent than it has any right to be and um i know when i was researching it like it took them a while to find someone to who could direct it to direct it yeah i was actually reading up on that myself and um, the actual director of what what was his name? I don't know how to say his name. I know his name. Oh, uh, uh, Paul Ver- pa- Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> yeah, so Verhoeven. Um, apparently he actually he he had to read the script two different times, and it took some hardcore convincing from his wife to actually do the movie. And I'm like, because you know maybe on paper, and I think this kind of goes back to what. I think he said something similar to this early, like on paper, it just seemed like, you know, a run of the mill action movie, but yeah, I guess, I guess the more he started to read it and realize like what it was actually, that's yeah. when it clicked with him. And he's like, okay, yes, I got to do this. And apparently um, 
there was a there was a there was a big disagreement like even on set um between him and i i don't know if it was one of the writers or if it was um i guess one of the pro- uh, production designers producers. or something producers yeah and uh, apparently there was this one scene or there was a scene like or the one where he takes his mask off and he reveals his face um they had a clash as to whether or not it should be dark or if it should be bright <laughs> oh really and, and apparently um well obviously uh, well paul wanted it to be bright um the other guy didn't want it to be bright he wanted it to be more dark so it didn't like you know fully reveal like his face or he they thought that because or the other guy thought that because of the makeup that it would be too obvious or it looked too i guess right. kind of, like, it looked weird basically Right. But obviously it went in Paul's direction and when it premiered and everything, the two of them apologized to each other because it turned out so good in the end. And <laughs> I guess yeah. they just agreed to disagree. And I'm like, well, that usually is what happens, you know, but I, I thought it was the craziest thing too. Speaking of which, actually, you know, all this Detroit talk, do you know where that, did you, did you actually uh, find out where it was filmed? Yeah. I just looked it up. Is, is it Dallas, Texas? Like Dallas, Texas. Yeah. I, I was like, uh, okay. That's cool. <laughs> that, that's like, I don't even, I, I, I wouldn't even get a hit of Dallas, Texas and like any of that movie at all. I know. <laughs> like, you know now, now next time I'll be in Dallas, I'm going to be like, they, they, they shot Robocop here. Like, how can I not <laughs> at this point? <laughs> yeah. So like you said, like Paul V. Robin didn't really get the satirical content at all, which is why he had to read the script twice. And I know he's like, he's a, he's a Dutch filmmaker. So I just wonder if he, I wonder, I guess maybe on paper, it's hard to kind of see. Mm-hmm. exactly what they were trying to do i'm glad that he had uh, a wife to convince him that like hey this is a this is much better than uh you're probably giving it credit for mm-hmm. um but like yeah you know like it's funny because like paul verhoeven is like you know after robocop and stuff he became known for like he doesn't really hold back when it comes to the, like violence and stuff like that yeah, and you violence, know because yeah. you know i mean he went on to do like a total recall and oh, uh yeah. And then, you know, he also doesn't hold back on sex either because he did Basic Instinct and uh, and then went back to kind of the sci-fi well with like uh, Starship Troopers. And uh, so he's known for uh, these kind of takes. Um, I know with the violence that he kind of was like, he wanted it to be kind of like so over the top that it was almost uh, funny. Um, I will, I didn't see the director's cut for a long time. And I don't know if it was because it was just hard for me to find or I, I, I just I hadn't seen it. And I already thought the movie in its theatrical cut was pretty violent. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. But then when I saw the director's cut, particularly <laughs> it's that um, that first scene where they're doing the Ed, <laughs> that was the Ed 209 uh, presentation and they have the guy like hold the gun and like basically the uh, that the, the machine like just fires yeah, fires off. Yeah. Yeah, fires off of him. And I remember seeing that scene from the director's cut. And of course, like in the film, like you do see like him get shot a lot, like up in the chest and like stomach area. And then it kind of cuts away and he like falls back. But yeah. then like in the director's cut, when he falls back on that like table thing, it just continues to like pump bullets yeah, that, into him. I was, yeah, I was actually kind of like cracking up about that. I'm like, they really, <laughs> they, they, they really wanted to cut this from the movie, but I see why, but like, come on, like it's, it's actually not that bad, but at, at the time, I mean, yeah, maybe because yeah. there wasn't really a lot of action movies that were depicting, you know, violence the way it was, uh, the way, like maybe today it would be widely accepted. 
you know, because yeah. we got because we got directors like Tarantino, you know, doing their over the top stuff, which is what they're best known for. And yeah. I don't know, like, yeah, that, that in particular. And I think there was also a slight extension of like when uh, Murphy actually gets shot to death for the first time. Yeah. And there was, I think, I think there was just a more prolonged uh, scene going on there instead of like a, you know, very cut, go back and forth, back and forth type thing. But yeah, the director's cut has some like, you know, you'll blink and you'll miss it sort of, but there's also some very obvious additions, which actually yeah. work pretty fairly the, well. And it's, I actually think the director's cut version of when Alex Murphy gets killed is a little better. And I forgot who explained it this way, but someone explained that it was supposed to be like extremely violent and graphic because they, they almost compared it to like the crucifixion with Jesus Christ. And then of course his resurrection after that, like it needs mm-hmm. to be brutal and really violent so that when he comes back as like this kind of like more superior being that it's more like right. significant. And I mean, like I said, in the theatrical cut, it does seem like he really gets it bad, but like, and you can make an argument that like in the scene where he's getting shot in the theatrical cut, you're not really seeing a lot of like bullets going into him you're seeing like the upper kind of half of the shot and him just reacting yeah. to being shot uh compared to like the director's cut it's like you're seeing him full body get like riddled mm-hmm. with bullets um you know the scene where he gets shot in the the hand that was already in the theatrical cut right where they they uh where clarence like yeah yeah where he's like uh <laughs> it was just so sadistic just like Clarence Monaghan mm-hmm. doing that whole like yeah 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 yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, but I kind of agree I think it I think like there's a a point to be made to having it both ways where like what you don't see and what you're kind of hearing is more like visceral because like the way he's reacting is so uh, impactful you almost don't need to see it yeah you almost don't need to see it yeah but then when you do see it in its entirety though it still works. It just feels like you're watching someone, you know, like get blown away like that. It, it, it it's a very it, 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 it accomplished what it wanted to do, and that is to make someone uncomfortable. You're just yeah. watching somebody like helplessly get shot to death, and it, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty hard uh, scene to watch in particular. Even on rewatch, yep. I still kind of squirm at the sight. I'm like, they really went all out with this. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's extreme. Um, you know talking about the more like intelligent aspects of uh, the screenwriter edward uh newmeyer uh talked about how he really wanted to have a like a like a real like satirical like glimpse into like 1980s like business culture like this is like uh the time period where like uh they call like basically call them like yuppies like this kind of like young professional uh like wall street kind of businessmen that were like kind of going around right then and this was like during the era of like Ronald Ronald Reagan and like big money and like kind of stuff like that and he really wants to poke fun of that whole environment because like behind all these like big businesses and all this like wealth was all this like excess that was going on behind the scenes which is why there's like a ton of uh well not maybe a ton I mean there's a lot actually there's a lot of like references to cocaine in the movie like most of these characters like even though they're like important business people, particularly like Miguel uh, uh, Ferrer's character. Um, I mean, he has that whole scene once he gets that deal with like Robocop after he kind of sabotages the, uh, well, he doesn't really sabotage the Ed 209 thing. He just, he takes advantage of like the Ed 209 presentation not working the way it should have and then kind of presents like 
his thing with RoboCop and like he has that whole like little celebration what I'm guessing with the two hookers uh, at his place and that whole scene is all about the two I think he described him as the two models yeah two models <laughs> uh, and that whole scene is all about excess and just like they're just all glowing mm-hmm. lines and like and it's just like and that's kind of like what that period was like and he really wanted to make a movie that kind of poked fun at it but also kind of was like this is also what's going on too you know like it's, it's, it's funny that you say something say that about the the cocaine aspect because something that i noticed uh when i watched it this morning um is that ray wise's character i forget his name but he has like this little like weird like vape looking device and he puts it yep. in his nose now i don't know if that's like i i, I could just go out on a limb and say they somebody predicted vaping <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah <devices>. right <laughs> <laughs> but <you> know, <laughs> But it just it just struck me as odd because like, you know, you know, yeah, this is the 80s, you know, they're poking fun at a lot of things like what if they're poking fun at, you know, like, like, like cocaine, but like doing it in a different form. And this is like something that's going straight into his nose, but maybe it's like vapor or something. I don't know. Yeah, right. But it, it was just something weird that I noticed. I'm like, is that is that supposed to be like, like future coke or something like what am i looking at here? <laughs> true. oh yeah and I, I i in addition to the main cast i mentioned earlier because i'm glad you mentioned ray rice he played leon uh nash and then uh paul mccrane played emil uh who meets a very terrible demise <laughs> in the end uh, uh jesse d goings uh was joe and then calvin jung was uh uh was steve and they are all members of Clarence Barnegard's uh, gang. And like, even though all of them may not have like a ton of lines and stuff, but as a group of people together, they're a very memorable bunch. Yeah, um, the, the chemistry there was remarkable. Like, even like it's like you say, they didn't even have to say anything, maybe, and it just worked because their presence alone was enough. Yeah, because you just look at, you look at them and you're like, yeah, they're the perfect fit. Yeah, this is this is gonna work. <laughs> yeah, I also like that. Like, it's interesting because. Yes, Clarice Barnegar is a, is a villain, right? And you're kind of mm-hmm. like set up in the beginning to really feel like he's the central villain until you realize that like someone more important is kind of pulling their strings. And that's like the Ronnie Cox uh, character. Uh, yeah. But like, you know, you get introduced to Clarence Barnegar. He, kill, he kills off Alex Murphy. And then most of that gang is like gone for a bit until yeah. Robocop uh, kind of figures out like, who he was and who he needs to find to figure out who he was. So like they make a huge impact, even though like they don't dominate like a ton of screen time. If you like watch, you know, the movie as a whole, as far as being like central villains. And then since like you get the sense that like Dick Jones is just based on who that, who he is as a person, that he is probably the one that is behind the scenes, like be the puppet. Yeah. Puppeteer. He's the puppet puppet master. (laughs) Yeah. But you're so like enthralled by like who these obvious villains are. Um, but I thought it was just interesting that, yeah, they don't dominate a ton of screen time. They're like, they're missing from a good middle portion of the movie until they need to be reintroduced again. And, uh, but they all make a really good impact. It's like, it's the initial like scene where of course, with the guy, when they burn the money and he throws the one dude out of the van, like all that stuff is really like just over the top and hilarious. And then it's the scene where they're testing out like the, I don't know what kind of weapon that was where they were just shooting. Yeah. They were just (laughs) shooting him off in the middle of the, like in the middle of like in the streets of Detroit. Um, Mm -hmm. But they all look like they're having so much fucking fun and like their camaraderie is just like really good together. I'm not saying that I was rooting for them by any means, but like they were, 
just a but, but the a fact that they bunch. were so uh, realistically chaotic was actually it was something uh, making note of right and they kind of play off each other really well they play off that chaos really well uh like you buy that they've been like a gang for like a very very long time <laughs> um, and they only have and they only work together probably for like just five hours worth of time <laughs> yeah exactly um so uh just going into the, like the development i guess i didn't even know this uh but the first draft of the script was called robocop the future of law enforcement which would have been a very long cheesy uh, title um it would have been, been, it, it been, <laughs> been very uh, I, I can just see the like robocop the future of law enforcement <laughs> it would just be that <laughs> it'd be really cheesy um i started making the rounds in 1985 and uh, eventually uh, ended up at Orion, uh, where they greenlit it. And uh, they wanted uh, Edward Neumeyer and uh, his writing partner to write a second draft of the script. And um, it was just a lot of like trying to like get the tone and everything right, I guess. And um, you know, they were very kind. Of, they were supportive of what they were trying to do, but like you said earlier, when it came to like you had to find someone in the helmet that actually understood what was going on and i think it's kind of cool that like paul verhoven didn't get it at first and then he did because he was already he was already bringing like his his technical sensibilities to the to the movie as far as like he knew how to like do the action he knew how to do he knew he wanted to go very over the top with the violence because like again like it's that whole concept of like everything about the movie is making fun of excess whether it's the drug use uh in this case in the movie it's the violence as well he already knew that and I think it's cool that he kind of discovered the satirical stuff as he probably was doing it. I mean, as he read it again and again, it was like, okay, I totally get why, you know, these cheesy, like, kind of like ad commercials that we're throwing into the movie ties <laughs> into like what's going on with the overall story too. Cause it's weird. Cause you have like all this commercialism and selling this certain image of like, uh, yeah, via this like news program that's running throughout the entire movie. But you're selling it in this city that is so corrupt and so destroyed by like crime. Like no one, like, it seems like no one really cares about what's, what's happening there. <laughs> like, like their, like their police force is about to go on strike and they're, they're like, they're being worked to the bone and not getting paid enough. And like, all like, there's so much of, it's crazy. Cause like so much of that mirrors aspects of stuff that we've seen the last few years. And you know, it's, you know, a lot of people talk about when you go back and watch these movies that came out in the 80s and, you know, their depiction of what the future was going to look like. And I wonder if, like, people watching this in 87 are like, no, no, we'll be in a better place. And then you're watching it in, like, 2022, and it's like, we're there and maybe a little worse. We're there and a little worse. But luckily, they haven't invented giant uh, cannon snipers yet. So once no, that happens, yeah. then yeah, maybe we'll start running. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no cannon snipers and no uh, robo, no robots roaming the city too. <laughs> oh, cool. to... at, least, at, at least not yet that we know of. And I'm just hoping that day doesn't come anytime soon. I know exactly. Um, <laughs> um, as and yo, know, I'm glad when they finally got uh, the story stuff together when it came to casting. Like, I guess for Alex Murphy, they considered Arnold Schwarzenegger, Michael Ironside. Oddly enough, both of them are in Total Recall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rucker Howard, Tom Berenger, 
Armand Asante, Keith Carradine, and James Remar were all considered for it. Orion really wanted Schwarzenegger just based on at that time Terminator. he was he was <laughs> it. He was Terminator. Um and that was a lot of the reason they wanted him for it. Um mm-hmm. but he's already physically imposing. And so they wanted someone who as a human was smaller in stature so that when they get in the suit, there is a big like contrast from like right. yeah, from what he was into what he becomes. I also I'm trying to I'm trying to I mean Arnold Schwarzenegger is already a robotic actor anyway. I mean just yeah, that's just very, he, that's just, that's just <laughs> his style. You know, he's played he's played the action hero for so long, like it never changes, but that's why we love him for that exact reason. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, I can maybe see him like spouting off some of the lines. Um <laughs> but this is also this this is also me looking at it through a lens of like knowing what Arnold Schwarzenegger is as a whole as his whole mm-hmm. filmography i i don't know how i would have felt about it if it was if i was like new to this back then and they're like oh like we think we want him for the part if i would think he'd even be good for it um i do agree though that they're they're neat i like that they kind of came up with this duality of like we needed someone who wasn't physically imposing to begin with right to kind of like separate the two uh you see you say Ritker Hauer, i'm like that would have been a very interesting alex murphy yeah, he would have been. Yeah, that would have been interesting too. I think so. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess him his, his people, and then some people involved with Orion were also like, well, his face is going to be obscured for most of the movie because at this point he's already Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they're like, you know, you don't get Arnold Schwarzenegger in your movie and cover his face. Just cover his face, yeah. <laughs> so Peter Weller was a um, a good choice because he was good. He was well, he was a good hire. Paul Verhoeven really liked him. He also said that his, I quote, his chin was very good, which was very important, I guess, because <laughs> you're going to get, you're going to, I think that was one of the biggest things about casting for RoboCop is, is your chin good you, enough. You have a proper chin. Do you have a proper it's chin? Like, I don't, I like, at that point, I really don't care if you can act or not. I want to know, is your chin good enough? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that he, uh, he also didn't command a huge salary then because he wasn't like a huge, huge star. Mm-hmm. Like he was, um, he was, known in sci-fi circles because he was coming off of the adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the ape dimension uh which i have just recently saw because i just got um i think it's called search for tomorrow it's like a uh it's the same people that did the search of darkness documentaries for like the 80s horror movies they did like a three four four hour documentary retrospective of the sci-fi genre from like 1980 to 89 and I saw they actually showcased that movie and it looked so over the top ridiculous that I had to see it. And Peter Peter Weller is pretty good at it. I wouldn't have okay. guessed he would be like Robocop after watching it. But I I'm guessing they I'm guessing they thought that like okay, he must have like he he's multi talented. Yeah. Um he, they also said that he knew how to also move his body well, even in the suit, even though he was like restricted a lot by how bulky the suit was. Yeah, apparently um, it was like another 40, 50 pounds. It was like a 40 or 50 pound suit. And apparently yeah. a lot of the movements were very hard to achieve sometimes because of, and he was even losing weight, I believe, in the suit because of how yeah, hot it was. Yeah, it was how hot it was. So like, I guess to like train on how to move, he would like move in like a fluid movement style and then have like kind of like a stiff ending. So everything was more robotic and he would train just wearing like, like a, a like a football, like basically like outfit, basically before he got in the suit. So he knew exactly how to move in something that bulky. Um, what's funny is that one of the things that he 
has said about working on the first two movies, because uh, he's only in the first two, is that working in the suit was an absolute nightmare. Like he, that was like he hated that part of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can see why. The way you described it, like just like just probably like sweating out in that thing, and like not being able to not not be able to move the way you want to. Like I know he trained on how to move in the suit to kind of get that right, but like you're still restricted by like how bulky the thing is. And then like mm-hmm. it's the head it's the head movements too because like you're not really supposed to like you're not moving like a human. And he kind of had to get that like all that movement uh right as well. Um but uh he also said working with uh Verhoeven was like the reason he ultimately took the part and he was happy that he did. Um and he's one of those people too that like I, I was trying to look up like what does he say about the movie now? He's very positive about uh the film now as a whole especially about how it's held up since it came out. He might have like little qualms about like, Oh, this was difficult to do while we were filming it. But he, you know, he is still, I guess, surprised by how much it has, how well it's held up over the years. How well received it was over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And how many more new people discover it. It's not just like, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people just rewatching it. It's like a new generation constantly uh, discovering the movie. Um, I kind of want to hear his thoughts on the reboot. I do too. I actually would like to hear a lot of their thoughts on it. Um, you I, know, I totally, I totally I, forgot Michael Keaton was in it too. By the way, because <laughs> no, I'll be honest with you, I didn't hate the reboot, but I had a lot of problems with it, only because it was dumbed down with a PG thirteen rating. Yeah, it and was. I think, it, I, th- I think that was a big slap in the face to the original per se, because I mean, the original was known for its notorious depiction of you know violence, and in this PG thirteen one, I felt like there were a lot of punches held. Yeah. And also kind of backed away. I mean, there was a little bit of it, but it backed away from like the satirical stuff that kind of made the original one like so good. Mm-hmm. And I, and that could be a, just a product of like when it's made, right? Like the 80s yeah. stuff was a lot easier to kind of satirize. Cause like, you know, that stuff was really going on in the news and like real time. It was easy to make fun of. Um, maybe they thought they couldn't really do that as well in 2014. Uh, I didn't hate it either. I remember like thinking like it's not great, but like I didn't like think it was like a total. I'll train be honest, wreck. I was I, I, I was still entertained by what I saw. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. it's like I said, you know, I, I think I think it served more as a remake than a reboot because apparently it was supposed to be like a soft reboot, and I don't know if that meant like okay, this is still taking place or the original's canon or not. But yeah. I'm 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 sitting there thinking I'm like. Why, why why would they green like this if it wasn't going to be rated R? I get exactly. it maybe from a bo- from a box office standpoint, yeah, PG-13 movies bring in the money because wider audiences, people buy tickets for those, people sometimes bring their kids, you know. Yeah. But but I did like um Joel uh, what's the Oh, Kinnaman, yeah. Yeah, he I I thought I thought he played a very solid uh, Alex Murphy though. I I, I thought he played yeah, well. I th- I think the biggest problem I'm glad we can kind of get this part out of the way now because, like, uh, I think the biggest problem I had with it is some of the things you're comparing to the original, they don't land as well. Like, you know, his murder in this doesn't land as well than it does in the original movie. So there's like a lot. That was my biggest uh, irks about the movie was that it wasn't really a death, it was just an accident. But it was just. (laughs) And honestly, that has to land the hardest because you want to be able to go, like, oh, like you. Want to feel sympathize with them, and it doesn't really land as hard. I mean, I like Michael Keaton in almost anything, so like, I it was funny. I 
was thinking about the movie because I hadn't seen the movie in a while. And I was like, oh, I totally blanked on him being in it. Like, I, I knew, of course, that he was in it. But, like, thinking back on it, I was like, fuck, he was in that movie. It was like during the whole like that was during, it was during the whole like Michael Keaton resurgence a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you know it's uh, you know who else was in that movie that I almost forgot was in it, and he has a very small role, Jackie Earl Haley. Oh yeah, there's there are some <laughs> significant put, significant you, people you, in there. You could think of him as the Clarence uh, as the Clarence of this uh, of this reboot only because you know he's kind of the he's kind of the right hand man for Michael Keaton's character. Yeah. So he's the one that's just following orders and like, you know, I don't care if I'm the bad guy kind of character, but you know, exactly. just, I'm just doing my job, man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as the other cast, um, Ann Lewis was originally going to be played by Stephanie Zimbalist. She was on Remington Steel. The show got canceled in 86, so she was able to do Robocop, but the show was popular with audiences, so they revived it and she was contractually obligated to go back to Remington Steel. So she had to drop out of uh, RoboCop. And then Nancy Allen was like her immediate uh, replacement. And um, Nancy Allen has said that she thought the title of the movie was terrible, but then she read the script and was like surprised by what how smart it was and how like mm-hmm. how much depth there was to it. So she ultimately like took it. Um, Nancy Allen, if like you're familiar, other people familiar, most people know her from like uh, hey. Carrie. Um, mm-hmm. She's a bitch in that movie. Um, <laughs> so, just, just, so that's what's funny about her playing like Anne Lewis. Like I mean, guy, I because yeah. I think she had played good people after that. But I was trying to she think was, of like her. Actually, in, um, the the one movie that I really love her in is uh, Blowout, and that's yeah. also something she started with John Travolta in, and it's yeah. actually one of my favorite De Palma movies. Um, just because it, it's just eerily scary. It's not like in your face scary. It's just the right. the circumstance of it is just super like, oh, <laughs> this this can actually happen. I think that those are the kind of movies that can get under your skin because of the realistic chance of it happening. Right. And then she's also in like Dress to Kill, which is like another uh, really good movie as well. Um, so like, right, I guess when Paul Verhoeven met her, because she, if you know her from Carrie and like her other stuff, she has long, long, gorgeous blonde locks. And he immediately told her that she had to like cut her hair, so it was Aww. more appropriate. It was more because it, it was like just more appropriate for the role. And but she was willing to do it because she really liked the she liked the the story. She liked the script. She liked the script. She wanted to work with uh, Peter Weller, uh, so she was perfectly you know, it's, fine. Um, it's funny because she actually um, at, at first glance um, she didn't really know what. Uh, uh, Paul had worked on, I guess, prior to that, and yeah. she realized that he was actually a director of like a like a very over the top like kind of sitcom co- uh, comedy, and yeah. they actually uh, and apparently they uh, play it throughout the um throughout the movie like on the TVs. If you notice, there's like different TV shows playing, and I think that's one of them. And yeah. she actually was skeptical about working with Paul because she thought that she was working with a like I guess an unprofessional type director. Like a, like a joke. Yeah, like a well, joke. Like she, she's all like, well, she's okay. coming off of well, she's coming off of working with like De Palma and stuff, right? So she's like, right. These these like auteurs, <laughs> and then like she's like, oh, like this guy is he serious? Um, uh, she apparently what she what they both ended up liking, which is why they decided to cut her hair. They didn't want to sexualize her at all they wanted her they wanted her to just be a cop and she wasn't going to be like the female love interest also i like that too because i think a lot of those movies back then even movies that into the 90s and early 2000s would have made her like 
also yeah. his romantic love interest as well. And honestly, it's cool that she's just his buddy. And I think it's a testament to both of them because you don't really get to know them together as a pair too much. It's just that initial like that meet and greet, and then they go off together on uh, mm. as part as partners just once. And but I guess that's a testament of the writing, and then like their camaraderie that they kind of quickly build as actors together. Um, right. Because I because I actually liked uh, I really liked the scene where they're walking. He's RoboCop already, and they're walking through the hallway, and she knows that like it's him. And uh, mm-hmm. and she basically is like trying to ask him questions, and he's like trying to ignore her. And she does the whole kinda, like he kind of like looks at her, and he kind of like backs up, like yeah, yeah. And then she does the whole like Murphy, <laughs> the whole like Murphy, it's you thing. And uh, and then he's like, oh, I gotta go. And he's like, his exact line is like, I gotta go somewhere. There's a crime happening. And he has to like leave. Um, and I thought that scene was so good though, because it's like she, you're you're just these little moments where she has to like pick up on the fact that like something is not quite oh. right and yeah. something's off and you know they i'm glad they went that direction and didn't make her like someone yeah, that would like, also I fall in love with them i think that's one of the things that i really liked upon the for like my first viewing was that they didn't like you say they didn't turn her into an, a love interest right away or they didn't like prioritize that as many uh movies had prior and even after that um yeah. it was just nice to see it was just nice to see a, an actual like female character not you know be the typical portrayed one right. in a hollywood movie so it, yeah that was a very refreshing aspect for me and i really i really loved what she did with the role i thought her character was brilliantly acted uh, played out i mean um yeah. even in the sequels you know like robocop 2 like i think i think the chemistry between her and weller was way was like there was a lot of improvement there maybe the movie not so much but those two on screen together they were excellent and then yeah. robocop 3 happened and i'm like <laughs> and then robocop 3 happened and like not necessary at all like okay you didn't have to offer <laughs> yeah, like, no, I'm, all, I'm like okay well something's not right here they didn't they didn't bring back peter weller or peter weller didn't want to come back for the third one and for obvious reason i mean dodged a bullet there probably but i was yeah. so mad because i watched robocop 3 and i'm like okay well i mean how bad could this be right you know, yeah. the only thing they did was recast, and no, they 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 straight up just killed their character in the first five minutes. I'm like, yep, that's <laughs> ridiculous. Um, here's what I'll say about RoboCop 2 really quick. Um, initial viewings of it, like back in the day, so like as a I guess as a young kid and then like teenager and then getting older, I did not like it as of course I don't like it as much as the first one. I can say that honestly, I don't think it's as yeah. good. But what I've discovered in like maybe the last five or more years is it's good in its own right. Like in its own way and like what it's doing, like the different approaches taking it, it goes way harder with the satirical aspects of it. And like the comedy a little bit more, it's dark comedy. It's really dark, but mm-hmm. like there's less of an emotional aspect to it and more of like a kind of dark comedy, like, Poking I, think, fun I, think tried, I, I think I think what it tried to do is separate itself from the first movie and try to be its own movie, which yeah. by any standard, I mean, any sequel is going to try to do that. You know, they don't want to like repeat what the first one did. And that's the mistake that a lot of sequels do nowadays. Right. And I think that, I think that's why I didn't that's I think that's why I didn't hate it. You know, like I, I really I really liked what I watched, you know. I mean, because at the end of the day, RoboCop Two is just a an action sequel. Like it didn't really, yeah. it didn't want to take itself too seriously. You know, they probably had a bigger. I think they had a bigger budget for that one since they the did. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, but, yeah. 
they had a bigger budget based based on the success of the first one um mm-hmm. you know it's interesting too i just wonder like even going into it if they realize like even from the script they're like this is like way different from what we did before <laughs> well it is it's you know it's it's different but like in a lot of ways it isn't because like that satirical stuff is in the first one i just think they kind of led with it in the sequel they just were like this is what mm-hmm. it's more of that throughout the whole thing and then on top of that it's ultra violent and then you know i know critics took issue with like the fucking foul mouth kid that's like part of the the little like <laughs> crime syndicate as well uh, <laughs> a lot of people like roger ebert in particular didn't like it um that aspect of it <laughs> but like like i said like i think like in recent viewings i'm like all right for what it is like it it's but way better than it's way better than three like at least it yeah, tried to do better. something <laughs> At, at, this, at this point, I retcon three completely because <laughs> you just like I, 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 like I, I, I'm sorry. Like I, I know whoever worked on it probably did their best and what they could, but it just it just shouldn't have been done. And yeah. I get it. Maybe from a financial standpoint, it could have actually been successful, and that's probably why they greenlit a third one. But yeah, you know, seeing as to how the second one turned out, I mean, what what more could have could have been possibly done? Right. And, and the thing is, like, with the, the sequel, the second one, it wasn't that it was a flop. It, like you said, the budget was bigger. So it was, a, it was in, like, 25 to $30 million budget. It did gross less than the original movies, $45.7 million here. But it didn't completely, like, collapse on itself. So I can mm-hmm. see why they're like, we can make another, we can make a third movie. Um, but they went, like, they did, they went way out the box and, like, did not please anyone that saw it. Uh, I think their money shot in that trailer was that he flies and then he has like the suit with the, he actually That's like, right. <laughs> <laughs> that was their, uh, I really remember that as a kid, that was like the money shot from like the trailer. And I was like, oh, well, maybe that'll be cool. Um, I even knew as a child that the movie wasn't good. Like as a, as a child, I was like, this isn't good. Like sometimes you just know. <laughs> and I knew yeah, that. Exactly. Um, getting into like some of the bad guys. So, you know, we talked about Kurt Wood Smith, who you you were saying like uh, that you at the time when you saw it was like that '70s show. That's what you knew him from. Um, yeah. I had never, of course, like when I saw it when I was younger, I never heard of him before. Um, I have the, you know, of course, the opposite. I think like where it's like I've seen RoboCop, and then that '70s show comes out, and I'm like, that's the guy from like RoboCop, and like you know, not foul mouth and different in his own right but like much more endearing on that 70s show um i guess that he auditioned for dick jones as well and they were like no and you were they were like no you are clarence um the only issue they had was that he was known more for television he hadn't had any real like film hits yet i think he only had one other small role before i think this was before robocop and that was for rambo 3 yeah and uh, that was so, like one of his only other like notable uh, features, and yeah, he did a, he did do a lot of TV. I'm not too familiar with his TV career, but other than seventy show, let me right? show. Um, here's the interesting thing, though. They said that his character was scripted to wear glasses so that he would look like a Nazi party, like a Nazi party member uh, named uh, Heinrich Himmler. And Kurtwood Smith was not aware that that's what they were going for. He said that he interpreted as the character portraying an intelligent and a materialistic front to conceal being a sneering smirking drug kingpin so he was like uh so he was like they had their vision of it and i had mine 
and they both kind of work together, I guess, because they're both really yeah, I was evil. Say, I'm not, <laughs> because something worked there. I mean, they both clearly had different interpretations of the character, and I guess they just met somewhere in the middle then. Because Clarence Boddicker is probably one of my favorite villains. I mean, no, he's so good. Yeah, he's, yeah. So yeah, he's so good. Um, it's, it's it's you know what does it for me is his final line because there's no other delivery that Kurtwood Smith has ever done other than dumbass. But, <laughs> okay. but, but you, it doesn't get any better than Sayonara Robocop and Cop, then gets yeah. stabbed in the neck. And I'm like, this is such a good movie. Man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I also love, and I, I still laugh at it every single time when he comes into uh, the house where the two models and that guy, he has to kill him with the, I guess the grenade or whatever, the bomb. Mm. And the, he walks in, and the first thing he says is "bitches leave," and they all they all like run out, <laughs> and it's just so like so like straightforward and deadpan, like like it's so good. Now, like now, his- now that you mentioned that, when I when I was watching it, like actually when I first bought the steel book, I, I I couldn't help but laugh at that because I'm like, how did I miss this? Like I don't remember this point at all. This is, it was such a genuinely like laughable moment for me because I had never like noticed what I I, I guess I never like registered with me very well and i guess now with the sense of humor that i've got and you know yeah. seeing him after all these years you know <laughs> i guess it just it just rang well with me or something yeah and it's funny too because <laughs> for how evil that character is <laughs> it, it, my train of thought is like he's like you don't belong here this isn't about you two you guys get out <laughs> like he could have easily just held them there too but he's like no you guys go <laughs> it was no, just like I, I i yeah i laugh every time he says it and um <laughs> He's also really good. I mean, he's good throughout the whole movie, but that scene where he like he's getting like thrashed by RoboCop. He's just trying to tell him like this like it's not me that you want. <laughs> like there's like there's like so much more going on basically like about OCP. Like they like run the cops and like that's when you find out that like you Dick know Jones Dick Jones is the one behind it all. Um but he's so good in that scene and I also love when he gets carried into uh the police Cops station. Yeah. Yeah, and he just and, spits on the paper and he's like, "Just give me my fucking, give my fucking phone call." call. <laughs> <laughs> and he, the guy, grabs the paper. He's like, "Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so good." Uh, uh, yeah, he, I, he probably is one of my favorite movie villains. And like, mm-hmm. I, you could just tell that he had so much fun playing him. Oh yeah, like that had to be like incredibly fun to be like that fucking evil, <laughs> and like get to get away with it for a little bit. I know it's just a movie, but like, yeah. You know, out of out of my own like curiosity, I wonder how many times it took to um do the you know the, ro- the like the robot noises that he makes right before he shoots off uh, Murphy. Oh hand. yeah, actually, should be interesting. Yeah, I, I I feel like there was a lot of giggling because of it because even that even that like you know when you're on set and that was like the first take and you just hear somebody go nee, 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 like laugh <laughs> like it's it's a giggling moment. <laughs> yeah. Um. And then Ronnie Cox, who plays Dick Jones, uh, he was known for playing just nice people throughout most of his career. He was like, he's like basically like uh, America's grandfather. <laughs> he's like had that like kind of look about himself. So he took on the role because he wanted to like actually play someone more villainous and like what he described as like more masculine and more like not just so like kind of hunky dory guy next door. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul Verhoeven saw that in him too, like that being able to like. He, if he could play the opposite, the extreme opposite of what that is, then that character will really work. Um, the character does really work, actually. Oh, yeah. Even, even though, like, and you get that, you get it, really, in that scene in the bathroom 
where the guy is like talking shit about him, and then everyone in the bathroom realizes like, oh, like Dick Jones is in the bathroom, we gotta go. And that one guy ends up like kind of you know, that one guy ends up kind of like peeing on himself <laughs> before he leaves the bathroom. <laughs> and like that whole conversation when he just like grabs the back of his head, and when he's basically telling like you basically like fucked with the wrong guy, mm-hmm. basically yeah, like you get it then that like oh this guy is like. Like he means business. Like this yeah, is, this is a, this is not just like, this is not just some like corporate dude in the suit. Like he's just like, yeah, like he completely lands that role. I think I thought he was like really really good, and it, it is interesting though that he kind of was known for just playing like really nice dudes back then. You know, I but anything else I see Ronnie talk another Dexter. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> another dark show. <laughs> And then, like, for, like, just the, I mean, everyone loves Ray Rice. I got to interview Ray Rice for Joe Blow, and uh, it was, mm-hmm. I mean, he's been in so many, like, like if you're, like, a horror fan or just, like, a fan of just, like, this kind of sci-fi stuff, that genre, Ray Rice has been in so many things. And uh, I got to mention RoboCop briefly. He likes talking about it. Like, RoboCop is, like, a, a highlight of his career for him. He really enjoyed playing that character and working with all those guys. He said yeah. that they were all really fun to work with. Oh. And it was interesting too about Paul McCrane. He plays Emil. I used to watch ER when I was growing up for some reason. And he was on that for like several seasons and his character uh, met like a, not, not a, a demise as nearly as bad as what, what happens with Emil and like, <laughs> <laughs> and Robocop. But it's just interesting to see these people. And like, cause on ER, he was a relatively nice person. And he had like he kind of was a boss and kind of edges and stuff like you know he was complicated in that way but he it was interesting seeing him play someone like a little softer than Emil was. Uh, I think of I think of the gang other than Clarence, Emil's probably my favorite only because I think that he has the most to do outside of Clarence. I think as far as like the rest of the guys because he has that yeah. whole sequence at the gas station which is actually really really funny and oh it starts off really funny and then like of course like once you murphy pieces together like oh this guy was a part of what happened to me then that that whole scene takes on a whole life of its own too and uh and then of course he he gets he gets it the worst in the end and i will be 100 as a child that like frightened me as a kid it's a genuinely frightening, frightening moment you know, for an action movie. You know, this is like some really Cronenberg type of shit. You know, yeah. like, we, just, we, we just saw a guy go through some toxic ways. Okay, like, yeah. okay, he's still alive. I don't know how. And it yeah. just explodes when, when, you know, he gets hit by a car. It, 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 it's something you just don't expect to see in a movie. You know? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's just it's. I was like, I remember as a kid, I was like, "What's going on? <laughs> Why? What's ha- what's happening?" Uh, I, think that, I think that was one of the scenes that actually freaked people out, like especially good noting of the violence. I think that was actually one of the moments that they made note of for being yeah. so violent. Yeah, because when he gets taken out by the like, oh uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's brutal. It, it, brutal. It's a it's a very terrible way to go, and you know I think everyone can agree with that. Yeah. I would not want to be exploded by a car. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, Jesse D. Goings plays Joe. Joe um, <coughs> uh, is the one with the funny laugh. I, I can't really. It's hard for me to get right, but he's the black the black one, <laughs> the black guy. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> he's, the, he's, he's the one that buys the car. <laughs> yeah, he buys the car. Oh, yeah. Then, like, Clarence, like, I got one. He's like, I got one just like yours, Clarence. <laughs> and then Clarence is like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> he's like, nope. The only one yeah. up his car. <laughs> the car. And that scene is hilarious, actually. Um, he also has the strangest scene with Nancy Allen. And I've never quite understood. He's peeing. And she's got him cornered, right? Like, basically, like, like freeze. And then he's like, oh, do you oh, mind? Yeah. And then he puts his hands up. Like, yeah, and then like he's like, you mind if you mind if I zip this up? And then she looks down for like a second. And in that moment that she looks down, he's able to like kind of subdue mm. her and knock her out. Like, it. I get why it needs to be done because she has to be separated from Murphy. It always just felt the, I don't know if it's the direction or how they approach that scene. It always felt weird to me. I was like, why wouldn't she like, call for him or i i don't know like it just it's always been like weird to me i think i think it's because like you know since her character is sort of um she's supposed to be strong and independent you know she's supposed to be like her own like you know she she's she's the backup she's her own backup and yeah. i guess like in the situation she felt she could handle it and that's probably why she didn't call out or anything but at the yeah. same time you know it felt it felt a little out of character too for her to like fall for something like that right yeah, it was. It, I mean, they we you, people talk about like kind of like plot contributions or whatever, like things that need to happen to move the plot forward, and like mm-hmm. they needed to separate her uh, from right. him so he could be alone, and that was the one way to do it. I just thought the execution of it is just so <laughs> weird because I was like, why does she look down? There's no need for her to look down. <laughs> She's got him already. <laughs> like what? I, I, I guess, don't think. I guess, it, I guess it was just one of those like like lightly humorous moments in the movie you know that it kind of needs just to like break the break the ice a little bit yeah because that's uh, all i can yeah. really think of because it you know yeah like i said it just fell out of character but at the same time i could probably see why they wanted to do that and being yeah. that um what was his name joe's character you know the yeah. character he's a, he's, a, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a joker in his own ways so i guess you right know, he's, he's playing tricks and she fell for it so there's that that's true um so like you said they uh they filmed in uh dallas texas i still can't believe that i know and like, I, I, I found that out today actually because I, I googled the movie earlier i don't know what i what i was googling it for but i um it, the thing the first thing that it, it said like when i was like reading like the brief to google description is, is that it said location dallas texas i'm like what that, can't <laughs> that cannot be right no and sure enough <laughs> It was. Um, yeah, like <laughs> Dallas City Hall is actually the exterior of the OCP headquarters. Okay. Um, and like they I, I, they said that Detroit does make a brief appearance in stock footage, but that's about it. And that's during the opening of the movie. It's over the like stock footage that over the like mm-hmm. Robocop like logo, where it's like showing different like scenes within the logo. That's the only bit of Detroit. They thought about doing it in Detroit. Um, but they had too many low, they said low, featureless, and visually uninteresting buildings, which is why they didn't shoot in Detroit. Um, uh, they also considered Chicago, but it was dismissed for aesthetic reasons. New York City was too high. And California also uh, had, oh, they were, it was also part of, an, they were filming another project in California that was similar to Robocop, and they didn't want, they wanted to kind of distance themselves from being in that area. They considered Houston as well. But Dallas was chosen because it offered more mod- modern buildings, as well as older, less maintained areas that they could use to double Detroit. Which I, I guess they, they did a good. 
I, I wonder if they actually blew up stories or if those are actually just set pieces because I would have I, I probably would I know right would have broken my heart. <laughs> I know. Um, the initial budget for principal photography was eleven million dollars. It went up um, to thirteen point one million dollars because they shot in Dallas for nine weeks, um, but it became clear that shooting was going to take a lot longer. So mm-hmm. it actually uh, because of they extended the shoot, the budget went up to uh, thirteen million dollars. Yeah, apparently um, what happened there was that they hadn't shot uh, Murphy's death scene yet. And I guess I, I guess they, they had gone to the studio and told him, you know what, like, we're we're really not going to finish this. So, like, we don't have the we don't have the budget for it. So they showed him like the cut so far of what they had. And the studio liked it that much that they actually gave him the extra funding for that uh, death scene. And that was the last thing that they shot. Nice. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that's <laughs> that's actually. Yeah, it's lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think that I think that's why the death scene is so effective too, because they had already done everything. They got a feel for what the movie was going to be. Oh, like what and, he would need to go through and all that too. Like exactly. you, were, yeah. And so I guess that's why the death scene works so beautifully because you know everyone was already like there. They knew the assignment. They just had to do it. And may I say they did it wonderfully. Wonderful, yeah. Um, so we talked about the costume a bit and how Peter Weller had to learn how to move in it. Um, the costume was not finished until sometime into filming. So they were filming other things without him being in the costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't affect the filming schedule at all. Um, but he, it, Peter Weller lost out on like a month of rehearsal time in the suit because it wasn't done yet. And then we, you know, we talked about earlier, like, you know, the costume stuff was some of the things that frustrated Peter Weller. Um, and that was a lot of it because, like, you know, he, it didn't get to him until well into filming. It is really bulky. It's really cumbersome. It took hours for him to kind of adapt to it each day. Um, and he also said he had a hard time seeing through the helmet visor and interacting with other performers while being in the suit. Um, he actually, uh, interesting story. He fell out with Paul Verhoeven over an argument over the suit and was fired. And Lance Hankerson, who was also in Terminator, uh, was considered as a replacement, but the costume was already built for Peter Weller. So they basically were like, okay, we need to talk this out and figure this out. And they ended up like kissing and making up and everything worked out. Um, But that's how bad the costume situation was where like Peter Weller wasn't like, you don't understand how like cumbersome this is. And Paul Verhoeven, who they said had like a little bit of a rep for being like, verbally aggressive on set was probably was like just fucking do it <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and don't I, I, don't I, question I think, me i think i think where we can draw the line on that one is that he was definitely no kubrick because i mean if right. you know any, if you know anything about the treatment that kubrick put his actors through i mean i don't think yeah. anybody will ever come close to that and me i hope that it doesn't come close to that yeah. kurtwood smith said that like he never he would be verbally aggressive offset, maybe to behind the scenes people, mostly with like costume uh, production design, that kind of stuff. He very rarely yelled at the actors, but he said that he was too engrossed with making the movie to be really sociable with like the performers, which he said he was fine with because he's like, I'm here to act and not here to like, you know, make friends, <laughs> basically. <Right>. So, <laughs> um, and then, uh, like you said, uh, the Nancy Allen thing, like she brought uh, that up. As far as what she initially thought of him, uh, but she says she ended up like having a great relationship with him while making it, and so did Ronnie Cox. Um, yeah. And uh, oddly enough, Peter Weller spent most of his time 
between filming with all the actors who basically murder Murphy. <laughs> um, he, he spent most of his time hanging out with Kurt Smith, Ray Rice, and Calvin Jung. I mean, I'd probably uh, be doing the same thing. I mean, it's Kurt Smith and Ray Wise, so yeah. I, and he I said, can't, "I can't blame him." And he said that the reason that they he hung out with them the most is that they maintained healthy lifestyles while filming the movie. And Weller had to train a lot for a New York City marathon while they were doing the movie. So that's why most of his time was spent with them. Um, it's kind of funny though that he spent like most of his time with like the characters that like completely take him out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I, the post-production stuff is mainly, um, I love the, uh, the score for this movie. Oh, um, the score's beautiful. The score um, is so good. Another thing that you don't pay attention to when you're, like, a kid, because I wasn't really paying attention to the music, um, but it's a beautiful piece of music. I'm going to butcher this guy's name, though. Um, it's, I think it's Basil or Basil, B A S I L. And uh, I'll just spell his last name. It's P O L E D O U R I S. I don't want to mess up the name, um, but, it's, the name <laughs> but it's a beautiful piece of music. Um, use really Angel effective. Doris, maybe? Yes. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Like, beautifully used in like two, two moments for me, the best. And it's when. Uh, it's when Emil's character is shooting at, uh, he's basically like, uh, you're dead, we killed you, and then he's replaying that whole thing, and then the the gas station explodes, and mm. the music kind of the music kind of swells after that whole thing, and after he like shoots Emil off the motorcycle. Um, but probably the best moment of it is when this whole police force who has been rooting for RoboCop turns on him because they've convinced him like you know he went to. He attacked Dick Jones. Dick Jones, yeah. And they're like gunning him down in that parking garage, and the music is just so like, it, it's like, so, so sad. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's such a it's such a very sad piece of music, and for good reason because, you know, we're watching we're watching RoboCop get gunned down, and for no reason whatsoever. He did he didn't do anything wrong, but you know this whole you know this whole cop thing, you know, it just it it it, it bleeds into the whole corruption aspect and. I, I you genuinely feel for the character and the score help uh, helps elevate that uh, sympathy yeah. you know for the character and everything and yeah, yeah. that, that I, I could actually I, I'll agree with you on that one that actually might be one of my favorite moments like even score wise uh, in particular yeah it, I mean like and it, it's it's all the things that it pieces together for you right it's like the the cops are corrupt this person has been like the whole movie that he's been RoboCop has been like serving them and like protecting them and like doing all these things for them. And then like the one moment where they should maybe like verify like information, like they like there are some people like in that scene where like who try to stop it. Like some of the cops who are like, no, you're going to kill him. And like, no, like don't. And they basically tell them to try to stop. But like the majority of the police force is like, you know, they're being led by, very corrupt organization so like they all turn against him and it's that whole like aspect of them like turning against him as like a gang like he's kind of left all alone and like as like and completely weak and it is cool that the end of that scene the resolution of that scene is his partner who's been with him throughout the beginning of the movie when he's like murphy as a human and then now she's the one that like saves his life 
and I think that yeah. I think I think that whole aspect of that scene is like so the way it comes together is like so very good. It also adds to the whole thing. Like I'm glad that they just made them friends. Like they're just not mm-hmm. like. Uh, and it would also undercut, even though you only see the wife and kid in flashbacks. Like it would also undercut his relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Like you don't like he had a wife and kid. Like it wasn't like he didn't have issues with them. Like he was a happily married man, and like before he died. So if they were going to make her as like, you know, this kind of like quasi love interest, it would have kind of undercut that emotional aspect too. I think they ended up uh, touching up a little bit more on that on one of the sequels. I don't know if it was the second or third one, but I think I it's mean, RoboCop 2 where she, uh, where she shows up and sees him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's at the it's like near the beginning of the movie, not the opening, but like I think after the big like opening sequence. And I forget right. what she does exactly. Like she she eventually she leaves, right? She doesn't want to be like associated yeah, I, I, with him. I, I, I don't remember how it went down exactly because I, I, I was thinking about it this morning and I'm like, I could have sworn that she met him, but I don't know if it was in the sequels or just I'm watching yeah. the first movie. I'm like, okay, well, it definitely didn't happen here. So I'm guessing it was one of the sequels, but I don't know. I, I think it was just very touch and go, I guess, just to like, re- like remind us that, yeah, he's, he had a wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like I said, it was very touch and go. And I guess after that, they just really didn't touch on that anymore. Yeah. It's interesting too, because like, again it's it's a combination of like good writing and like how they edit all this stuff together because you only get like a big flashback with him when he goes back to his house and and that's another a good example too that's another good example of the music the music in that scene is really good too because there's this whole buildup of like all these things that he's remembering and then he gets mm-hmm. so frustrated he ends up punching out that like that TV that's on the house that's like basically trying to sell the. the frustra- I don't know if it was the frustration of remembering. I'd probably be pretty annoyed too if somebody kept trying <laughs> to look at a damn house, dude. Like yeah, <laughs> that's right. Like I, if I want to buy it, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah, but it but it works. You know, you only get like that brief moment of like his past, basically, other than him talking about it, and then like it's but it's the little things. Him talking about it, like the whole like where'd you learn how to like twirl the gun? He's like, oh, I it's a show I watch with my son, and then that. That gets integrated into the character too, like that. That there's those little things that like are so I think are so good that like mm-hmm. they seem so small, but they end up becoming so important like later. Yeah. And I I think it's honestly best that they kind of like left the family out of like the rest of the movie because it it just reminds us of how alone he is, you know. After yeah. all that happens, you know, eventually, like you know, with the with the police force, you know him being all alone after that he's getting gunned down and then his friend comes to the rescue you know it just kind of it kind of helps us remind it like i guess it just reminds the audience like i said you know like how lonely he is or how alone he is in the world and exactly he's just a machine being controlled by the the higher-ups yep um the big issue in post-production was the r rating we talked about how the movie was very very violent um Mm -hmm. the motion picture association of america made them go through several cuts uh to get it off to make it have an R rating. Uh, they originally gave it an X rating because of all the violence. Um, they Verhoeven said that they refused an R rating eight times. He said there are reports out there that say 11, but he said it was eight. That is still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, they took issue with several scenes, including Murphy's death, uh, the add to an eye shooting the executive. We talked about that. And all they did was they, sh- they shortened most of the violent scenes. And then, mm-hmm. like, the media breaks that are in the movie, like, the kind of the ads for, like, the, basically, like, their version of, like, Battleship and stuff like that. It's, like, all the, like, the commercials and stuff. They were thrown in to kind of lighten the mood and make it kind of funny 
to kind of undercut some of the violence. And that actually uh, helped, I guess, with the MPA. They, they, he was like, so, it's weird too, because if you watch the director's cut, yeah, they do linger on certain violent shots a little long, but it's not like it's like minutes. It's like seconds. It's like yeah, maybe it's like, five. <laughs> it's it weird that you. Tr- it honestly makes me wonder what what cut was shown to them like initially because you know you watch the director's cut, it's not all that bad, and you know once once like you know movies have like started moving a little bit more forward, you start to realize the the like the slow gradual increase of how violence is depicted and how more lenient the MPAA eventually yeah. got to be. Because I think I, I think even like I think the '80s was just a big playground for the MPAA to give X ratings because even Scarface I believe was got an X rating because yeah. of its violence too. Yep. And, and um, um, you you also talked about how that scene with Emil when he gets disintegrated by the car was mm-hmm. a big issue with the MPAA, but everyone <laughs> not, not not just Verhoeven but uh, the studio refused to remove it because it got the biggest laughs during their test screenings and they were like we don't want to take it out um so they he i guess when they kept resubmitting it they're like no this is not a serious like scene of violence so just think of it as like a really funny like over the top like death scene and then mm-hmm. they were like okay that changed their mind and you I, i've heard little stories about the mpa like if when they approached them like oh well the uh like west craven had to deal with like that with scream and a lot and you know i don't really like talking about the wine scenes but one of the things that the wine scenes did with scream when they kept getting like when they couldn't get an r rating and they kept going above that they were like hey scream is not a horror film it's a satire it's supposed to be kind of a comedy almost so if you look at it that way it's not really like a hard r like horror film and then the mpaa was like okay you're right and then gave it an r rating (laughs) based on those sensibilities right so that's the, right. kind of the same thing that happened with like the Emil thing. They're like, no, it's like, it's funny. It's not really like a serious scene of violence. And then they were like, oh, okay, you guys can keep it in. And then they watched so the weird. final cut and they're like, this is not funny at all. This is yeah, pretty, I know. pretty fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's funny too. Like, so the, the media breaks that they put in the movie, like the commercials and stuff like that, I guess one reviewer was confused by it. And in his review, complained that his projection is put in the wrong film reel, and that he was watching a different movie at one point. And Paul Verhoeven would have to be like, uh, "No, that's that's our movie. <laughs> <laughs> you are not watching a different movie. Sorry." Um, you know, uh, as far as like the release and everything, like they, they were encouraged by like positive test screenings and stuff, and they were like, "Okay, we think we have something here." But there was a, I think marketing it became like an issue because it's like, do you mark, like, how do you market it, especially at that time period, right? So it's 80, 87. Action movies like that are pretty popular at the time. So do you market it as like a big, dumb action movie or do you try to like show off the more like uh, intelligent aspects of the film? And they kind of, uh, people were also like Nancy Allen, I guess, when she read the script like a lot of people initially were like that title's really dumb this is gonna be a really dumb movie um it kind of you should have heard the original title (laughs) i know right (laughs) god um it kind of it kind of worked out where like both of these things ended up working together where like the marketing okay we can market it as like a sci-fi action film 
But they also had the benefit of when the movie opened, it opened to really good reviews. Mm-hmm. And they kind of had that going for it, too, where there was all this chatter like, hey, this is like a pretty good movie on top of just being like a fun action movie. It wasn't expected to be uh, the number one movie the weekend it came out. Um, it earned, uh, let's see, on opening weekend, $8 million on opening weekend, which is not huge. Uh, but it's a probably decent for 87. It actually topped. Oh, it's a pretty big. Number. Yeah, it it topped a reissue of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which opened the 7.5 million. And it topped the opening of Jaws the Revenge, which opened the 7.2 <laughs> million. Um, it all... 7.2 for Jaws the Revenge. Yeah, opening weekend. Um, oh. It also was, it was number one for two weeks in a row. Um, and even though like even though it got knocked out of that spot um it's it's so crazy too because in the weeks following which means i'm gonna have to do an episode about this you have the lost boys that came out like within like three weeks of uh this movie opening so like they were saying even though it never regained the top spot after its first two weeks it had like legs throughout its entire run Mm -hmm. um and ended up making 53.4 million by the time that um it was all said and done and it was the year's 14th highest grossing film behind Croc- Crocodile Dundee and La Bamba and Dragnet. Um, mm-hmm. But it also wasn't expected to do a uh, huge business. So the fact that it ended up doing the business that it did uh, was a big surprise to Orion Pictures at the time. Yeah, I think Just especially like since, like, you know, since usually R-ra- uh, R-rated movies are known for, like, not making a, a grand sum of money. Yeah, I'm pretty like I'm pretty sure that's why they were kind of thinking not just because of it's like you know how violent it was it might turn off an audience but rather you know how many people are actually going to go see this. Yeah, exactly. Um, when it opened, you know, we have the I didn't even know Cinema Score was around in '87, but Cinema Score is like an audience poll uh, mm-hmm. for opening for opening day moviegoers, which can kind of make or break a movie. Um, it got an A minus <laughs> Cinema Score when it opened. Um, nice. And reviews were just all like mostly positive. Like a lot of people just pointed to the fact that they liked Verhoeven's direction because it was like smart and darkly comic. And they really loved like the social satire in it. They also were surprised by how like emotionally, how much emotional depth there was in the film. And uh, Roger Ebert uh, praised Reller's performance and especially his ability to elicit sympathy and convey chivalry and vulnerability while mostly concealed beneath a bulky costume. Um, uh, Washington Post said that Weller offered a certain beauty and grace to the part that uh, they don't think most people could have achieved at the time. There's also a, big, a great compliment to him. Um, and then Variety highlighted Nancy Allen as providing the only human warmth in the film. Uh, and uh, said Kurtwood Smith was well cast as a sicko sadist, and that is pretty spot on. <laughs> I mean, um, they, got, they got that. They got yeah. That that is pretty special. <laughs> <laughs> it is true, especially like like going back to that. Especially with the line like "bitches leave." I mean, how much more how much yeah. sadistic can you be? <laughs> um, but the the thing that stood out, which is like the thing that Verhoeven didn't understand when he first read it, every reviewer said like the thing that stands out even today about RoboCop is that its view of like corporate corporations and like interchangeable use of corporate executives and uh and kind of how like it's interesting because like that 
aspect is going on in like big business in the movie. And it's also happening on the streets of Detroit within these smaller kind of crime syndicates, but there's just more money on this end and less money on the other end. And they thought that that duality that they were able to have within the movie was surprisingly very smart. And they said that it still holds up even today that they were able to kind of strike that chord and get that right um, mm. at the time. Um, and uh, as far as accolades, um, it won special. It won a special achievement for best sound editing at the 60th Academy Awards. So RoboCop has an Oscar. <laughs> um, so good for RoboCop. It also received two other nominations for best film editing, uh, and it lost to The Last Emperor and best sound. Uh, it lost to uh, also The Last Emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, I also. I think, it, I think it got heavily nominated at the Saturn Awards, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It really did, actually. Um, let me see what they have here. Yeah, at the 15th Saturn Awards, Robocop was the most nominated film. It won Ooh. awards for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director for Paul Verhoeven, Best Writing for Newmeyer and Minor, Best Makeup, Best Special Effects, and it received three further nominations, including Best Actor for Peter Weller and Best Actress for Nancy Allen. Nice. Um, uh, Robocop was also a huge hit on VHS because, of course, this is when VHS was the only way you could watch movies at home. <laughs> um, it made an additional, in its initial run on VHS, it made an additional $24 million in sales. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, uh, they said that the demand for rentals was very high uh, when it came out, but the demand was so high. Uh, actually, VHSs were very expensive at the time to buy. And so, like, releases like Dirty Dancing, Robocop, Predator, Platoon, um, people were on a long wait list to actually get these movies for either a cheaper price or having enough money to afford a expensive copy of these movies on uh, VHS. I wonder how much VHSs were back then. Were they, like, around the same as, like, what we'd buy? Like, what, what we buy? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um and uh, I mean, of now, course, because now we're because pay- now we're paying between what twenty five to to forty dollars uh, for a movie now, especially exactly for the higher quality stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's crazy. I mean, and like it's crazy that it made twenty four million dollars in sales. And I wonder if that's probably a combination of like rentals and then people also just buying it for absurd amount of money. Um. I think oh god, a chunk I, of that might have actually come out of the rentals. Rent, uh, renting, yeah. renting, renting tapes back then was actually a a, a big deal, apparently. Um, it's, yeah, it's evidently it, clear because my grandmother had a whole box of VHS tapes, and that's kind of how I got introduced to movies. Yeah, the they said the film was popular in rental, peaking at number one in mid March 1988, and the demand for rentals outstripped supply, so they didn't have enough. Oh. Uh, as estimates suggested, that there was one VHS. Uh, one VHS copy of a film per 100 households. So they were, it made it difficult to find uh, it for a little bit once people like were renting it a bunch. Um, so, I mean, I, it started its life. I mean, it's weird because like, yeah, it was financially successful in theaters like enough, but I think, I think it found an even bigger life uh, once it hit home viewing. And I guess you can kind of call, call it a cult classic, even though it did reasonably well in theaters. I think it kind of, its popularity only grew, mm-hmm. uh, the you know after its life in theaters. I think, which probably encouraged. That's probably another reason they encouraged Actually, them to do a sequel um, too. It, it, 
I mean, it even happens uh, now because they actually started screening the the 4K director's cut a lot in theaters. Uh, oh, most I, recently, they did it at Draft House for, I think, the 35th anniversary. Yep. No, that's nice. And then, of course, it was followed by RoboCop 2 in 1990. RoboCop 3 are the one that Donnie shuns in 1993. <laughs> uh, and then there was a uh, reboot, soft reboot, remake, whatever you want to call it, um, in 2014. And um, as far as we know, there has been this continuation of yeah. it that's been in development. Uh, yeah, apparently it's been going, or uh, it's been in development since 2020. I'm, I'm guessing it might have just been like a COVID-related uh, issue that might have delayed filming, probably. But yeah. to my understanding, it's supposed to retcon the the two sequels, and it's supposed it's to be, be a, directly... a direct a direct sequel to the, the 87 movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, I see that. Yeah, there, I see that here. RoboCop Returns is intended to be a direct sequel to RoboCop, but ignores the series' other films. Um, the film is set to be directed by Abe Forsyth, who is rewriting a script written by Newmeyer and Miner, who uh, wrote the original. In 2020, Ed Newmeyer revealed to Movie Hole that a RoboCop prequel TV series is also in development which will focus on a young Dick Jones and the rise of Omni consumer products. That was in 2020 though. I mean, a lot has been in development and dropped since COVID hit. I haven't heard anything about um, the RoboCop sequel or the this TV prequel in a while. Well, something I heard about recently was a video game. Yeah, oh yeah, I did hear about that, yeah. I think they dropped a trailer and everything. It, it honestly looks really fun. Like, don't get me wrong, like the game looks great yeah um I, i'm just surprised because you know it kind of goes back to that whole robocop versus terminator thing that i brought up at first yeah. because at the same time there's also a new terminator game dropping and it's supposed to be like an open world survival type of game okay and it, it's yeah it, it's it's super it, it, the, the timing of it's remarkable because you know both of these things are dropping at the same time now all we need is another terminator reboot and maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get maybe we'll get the 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 crossover we've always wanted yeah i mean if they if they reboot terminator again just don't throw 180 million dollars into it Try to make and it on the cheap and, and, and then don't recast <laughs> for a recast because that was a big mess yeah, it was, you know, I, I talked about this on the episode that we recorded uh, for this week that's coming out tomorrow. And I we were talking about Comic-Con because I might be going and then our guest is definitely going. And we were talking about he was also there for like the Terminator Dark Fate panel that they had at Comic-Con mm. when that movie was about to come out. And I was like, the hysteria in that room, everyone was excited for that footage that they saw, like. But then I realized that, like, and I realized this working for Joe Blow and then like, having to go online to get, like, initial Twitter reactions and all this stuff. There's initial excitement from, like, a groundswell of fans that love this stuff. And I've learned, like, kind of the hard way that that is not, like, the mass, usually the mass opinion of everyone else. So while that mm-hmm. room was super excited for Terminator Dark Fate, I remember that movie opened and it kind of, like, it, it was clear on opening day that it was not going to do well that opening weekend i was like well what the fuck mm-hmm. happened i thought everyone wanted linda hamilton back yeah, I, I thought they know, wanted because <laughs> when they announced dark fate i'm like okay this is cool like they're they're kind of they're, they're kind of trying to fix something here and i'm i'll, I'll appreciate that you know we got um uh, what's his name the director of uh deadpool i think that uh, yeah i'm, I'm blanking on his name right now but he's like 
Yeah. yeah, I can't think of his name, but I'm like, okay, well, this is a good team. They're bringing it back to the R-rated roots, which is pretty neat. You James know, Cameron's it. producing it, and he exactly. co-wrote. And he, he co-wrote the story. Yeah, like, like all the all pieces and, in place. <laughs> you know, when when I watched it for the first time, I don't know. I just I I, I felt bored watching it. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I just caught myself being a little bit bored. Like the, the action was great. You know, I, I liked Mackenzie Davis as a Terminator, you know, you know, she, I thought she did a very good job. It's nice to see yeah. Arnold again, Linda Hamilton, you know, all the, all these faces, you know, like the, like old and you, and you know, it's, it, it was neat to see, but they, 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 they butchered the story. Right. Completely. And I didn't appreciate that they, you know, basically brought back Edward Furlong, which wasn't even Edward Furlong. It was just a deep fake Edward Furlong. <laughs> 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 and they just kill him in the first two minutes. I'm like, so what the hell were you guys trying to accomplish here? Like, there's really nothing, nothing to be said other than you just ruined the movie by killing John Connor. Yep. In the first five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I'm like so. I'm like okay, you cool. Just, like John Connor's coming back. Edward Furlong's gonna reprise his role. Fuck yeah! Like let's go. No, nope. yeah. <laughs> was nope. not what I was expecting it to not, be. Not at all. Not at all. Um, well, to kind of wrap this up, I mean, so it's this movie came out 35 years ago. Um, of course, mm. we've all discovered it in different stages of life. Like people who are older, like either grew up with it or people who are younger discovered it on their own. Um, I mean, you kind of touched on it too. I, it, I think it still holds up very well today. Um, of course, there are some things about it about that are very '80s. Like we talked about the excess of like the violence and like the drugs and like all that stuff. That is very '80s. But the overall story, <laughs> the very '80s, very '80s. The futuristic uh, prediction of uh, vapes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the overall story holds up really well, and I think like the action holds up well. Like a lot of it still resonates i think and i think that um it's that kind of movie that i think even 35 years from now people will be able to watch it and be like there's something very good here and you, and you know i think what advantages a lot uh for the movie especially like with the action sequences and everything is how practical it was right you know they didn't, like i know i know cgi wasn't big back then but this was already like you know the pre the the pre uh, level or the pre um stages of cgi yeah it didn't start happening until the 90s yeah they could have easily done that you know they could have just copped out and said you know what let's just do you know computer animation whatever and i'm glad they didn't you know they they wanted something a little more grounded they wanted it to be as practical as possible and 35 years later i i can even say it actually holds up a lot better than than some of the action movies we've gotten recently you know, yeah, I think so too. I think a lot of those, I think a lot of those movies from the, a lot of those movies from the eighties, I think, really do. And I think that's like, like what you said. Like a lot of it is like the use of practical effects, so you're not really looking at like CGI that's dated. Like mm-hmm. you know, so like there, that's like you know, I I watched Predator again recently, and while there are some effects used to like kind of like the whole camouflaging thing for like the Predator yeah. and all that, like for the most part, that's just all like practical stuff in action and like that movie still holds up really well before that because of that same reason i think it's like it's the use of like that's why i will never understand like i mean i fully support all those people who are making practical effects back then who are like i wish we didn't move away from this because it's just so much there's a lot more realism there and mm-hmm. like i think you, you 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 lose that when there's so much cgi and you're right there's not well any of that i guess in robocop it's like yeah, I mean, given the budget, I, mean, I guess the, yeah. 
I mean, I think that's probably why, because I mean, CGI is really expensive, and nowadays that's where most of the budget goes. Yeah, <laughs> and because you know, because even the fight, no, even the even the like the fight with uh, I don't even know if you call it a fight, but like the the Ed two hundred nine Robocop thing when he goes to Dick Jones' office. Um, I know, like for the mo- like for some of it, when they have to be close together, when he like explodes the the R of mm-hmm. Ed two hundred nine, there's like some stuff used there. Uh, but I don't even think that's like CGI. I think that's just like uh, I, I, I forgot. Like they kind of look more like stop motion, if anything. Stop, stop, stop like, motion. I, yeah. I, I think I think they just like enlarged it, like using yeah. some camera trick or maybe some very neat placement. Because yeah. I, I was gonna, because I was actually gonna say, I'm like, I guess a robot could be considered CGI, but at the same time, you know, since they were trying to be as practical as possible, or given the fact, um, I guess stop motion and just an alert and an enlargement emphasis on the robot itself i think that's how they pulled that off kind of makes yeah. me want to watch the the behind the scenes again just to just to make sure i didn't miss anything yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um but yeah i think it's legacy will kind of live on for ever and like it you know these are the kind of movies that you want to talk about like when they hit these kind of milestones because like it is it is interesting because like sometimes you get like a 20th 30th 35th anniversary and it's like oh well this didn't really hold up that well it's, especially if they're talking like about particular issues that like oh like they that wouldn't fly today you couldn't make that movie today um but this you know the way it's talking about like corporate greed and like you know uh how we deal with like handling the police and like corruption and like you know all that stuff is still very much relevant and people are still talking about it and i think that's why i mean almost in a sad way <laughs> like robocop is still like oh you can still look at that and be like this was made in 87 and like we're still kind of like in this place currently in 2022 when it comes to a lot of these things. Um, but that's like the power of filmmaking though. I mean, like they, some of these writers see it and yeah. like they, and like they kind of capture like lightning in the bottle. And then like years and years later, it's like, Oh, this is like, this is what I was seeing in 87. And then this is where we're at today. It's like really interesting, but I think that's why the movie continues to hold up. Um, I don't know what I want from it now. I mean, I, I do like the idea, it's interesting to kind of think of a sequel that would just pick up after the original. Um, I'm the only the only skepticism that I have is, are they still going to cast Peter Weller given his condition now? Probably not. So it'd be a different guy. I would assume. But that's that, 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 that's that's my skep- that's my skepticism is who would they cast now as a RoboCop that could pretty much be the next Peter Weller? Right. And you know what? Like, I honestly think I don't necessarily need another film, but I do think because of where we've kind of come with like miniseries and limited series, I think a TV show would be really good oh, yeah. if you can kind of if you can get like on like a like a HBO Max or like a you know like one of the streaming servers or even like cable network or whatever. Like, I think it would work solid, in that format really well. A solid eight, a solid eight episode limited series would probably work and benefit very yeah. highly. I think it would be the concept. I think because I, I mean, yeah, you could do a movie, but I feel like for something such as RoboCop and being that there could be a lot of advantageous world building, um, yeah, like you say, a series would probably work a lot better in terms of doing that. But yeah. I mean, I don't know what they're gonna do. I'm curious to see what they'll do. Who's gonna direct it? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's just one of those like cautiously optimistic things where I'm where I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna like you know take pride in like you know saying i'm excited for it but at the same time i'm not going to not be excited for it yeah exactly well um 
Well, at least we still will always have RoboCop, so that that's good. Um, <laughs> and you know, I'll even take RoboCop two, and then we can. I agree with you. We can put RoboCop three in the. It's just not. You, I, I just re- you can record it out. You can be like, it didn't happen. <laughs> it's like it just yeah, didn't happen. That's all I say is like I, I've only watched it once. I only needed to watch it once, and believe me, I don't think I'll ever watch it again unless I'm at <laughs> yeah. that gunpoint or you know, dead or alive. I have to watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, those those first two movies are canon, and then that third one is. Which is why I'm kind of glad that the, this direct sequel is like retconning those two. I mean, not that there's anything, not that I hate the second one in its entirety. I just, I'm glad that the third one is just not going to be mentioned. Yeah, all. yeah, we don't have to, it could be erased or lives. <laughs> okay, neuralized men in black style, pretty much. So we don't oh, have to God. like think about it anymore. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, man, for coming on and helping out and talking about yeah, uh, this movie. Um, of course, we have like many more anniversary episodes coming down the pipeline. So, um, if you want to be involved in any of those, just let me know. Um, and then uh, I will, uh, in the bio for this episode, uh, his link to his uh, Instagram page will be listed as well. So you can follow him and his movie reviews. Uh, encourage him to hop on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, slow, I'm, I'm slowly walking in that direction, okay? I'm yeah. slowly getting, He's getting there. there. He's getting there. Uh, and then other than that, um, I have to thank Playlist Studios, who does uh, this podcast, because uh, they actually do a lot of the legwork that myself and co-host Owen and Jack cannot do because we're really busy. And that's a lot of the editing and then like uh, some of the promotional stuff as well. So they're always a big help. So thank them. And you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcast fixed, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, good pauses has been another really good one uh, where a lot of independent podcasters are getting discovered um, and it's growing and growing by the day. So that's another way to listen to us. Um, the YouTube channel is on pause right now, but I'm actually having a meeting with playlists tomorrow because they want to start live streaming our episodes and posting them straight to YouTube uh, that way. Uh, so we're going to see how that goes. So that might be something new that's coming in the next few weeks. And um, and then up next we have an anniversary episode for the Dark Knight Rises, which is will be it'll turn turns ten. Um, so already, yeah, that's weird. I know. I <laughs> feel uh, so like it seemed like only yesterday, like you know, Nolan made his trilogy, but it, it actually yeah. hasn't been that long. It's also weird that like because we did an anniversary episode for the Amazing Spider Man, I was like they came out the same summer. Like <laughs> like I didn't even like realize. Yeah, <laughs> the same summer. Um, so yeah, that we'll be uh, talking about that. Maybe if you have time, you can jump on that one as well. Um, uh, but it should be a fun one. So thank you again, my friend, for hopping on. And uh, it's been a good one. It has Peace. been a good one indeed. Thanks for having me. No problem, buddy.